in the sorting office in Corinth, you would have been hard pushed to know where to deliver the letter addressed to the Church of God in Corinth. The Temple of Aphrodite, no problem, on the Acropolis. The Shrine of Hermes, just behind the Agora. The Temple of Asclepius, just north of the theatre. It's all well researched, by the way. The Church of God in Corinth. That's a new one on me. Hey, Archimedes, ever heard of the Church of God in Corinth? Can't say I have, Demetrius. Any more clues? Have a look inside. To the Church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Isn't that the new group? The followers of the way that started up in the city a few years ago and that little bow-legged fellow, what was his name? That Jewish guy, Paul, came a few years ago. I don't think they've built a shrine or a temple yet. Better deliver it to Titius Justice. He lives next door to the synagogue. Or, failing that, try Crispus, two doors along. Pretty sure he's another of them. No, of course, no such thing happens. The letter that Paul, an apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ, wrote to the church of God in Corinth was, as most letters were in those days, hand-delivered. But he makes an important point that we so often miss and misunderstand today. In my dictionary, I looked up church. Here's the primary definition. Church, a building for public worship, especially Christian worship. However, contrary to what the dictionary may say, and most people may think the church is not a building, but people. People in a specific geographical location who have been called out by God to be holy, different, set apart from the rest of the population, along with people from all over the world who call on the name of Jesus Christ. That's how this letter begins. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. It's a remarkable fact that we have no record in any excavation anywhere of any building specifically built and dedicated for Christian worship until towards the end of the second century. And even remarkably, even more remarkably, despite that, maybe because of that, the Church of Jesus Christ spread at an astronomical rate through the Roman Empire in those first two centuries. Just as Jesus had promised when he was on earth. Because Jesus said to his followers, I will build my church, and even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But the Church of Jesus Christ was built not with bricks and mortar, but with people, people like the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote his letter. And as we've seen in our previous study in this wonderful book and most instructive book for us in the 21st century, many resemblances to the 1st century, Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Corinth because they have got things out of focus, out of perspective. They are majoring on minors. Or in our title, they need to emphasise the importance of keeping first things first. And so this letter is written to put their thinking straight and their behaviour which always follows from it. Because if you can get people's thinking right, then their behaviour will automatically follow. And he writes to put them straight on several key topics. And the topic today and the subject of chapter 3 of his letter is our subject today, 
that of the church, or what I've called church building. And you'll find it in 1 Corinthians 3, and it's page 1145 in the Pew Bibles. And you will need a Bible, please, to look at. If you can't see one around you, just reach over. There are plenty down the front or at the sides if you can't find one where you are, or at the top. One Corinthians chapter three, and this is what Paul wrote. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. But since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord is assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burnt up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This is God's Word. Now our subject this evening is the church. And before we look at it in more detail, and before or because some of you will switch off at this point, let me stress how important this topic is. I believe that in an inadequate understanding of what the church is, is one of, if not the most serious problem facing Christians in the West today. We are far more interested in ourselves than in the church. We are far more interested in ourselves than the church. Let me give you one simple piece of evidence to support this, and there are many other pieces of evidence one could give. Most of our modern songs, and you will know that I like modern songs and we sing them regularly in this church, most of our modern songs are written in the first person singular. I did a little check. I got out Mission Praise, combined Mission Praise, 
which is the hymn book we use regularly in this church along with other ones on the screen. There are just over a thousand hymns and I did a quick count and by my counting there are exactly in the index this is 100 hymns that begin with I and only 40 that begin with we. I suspect in previous generations the reverse was probably the case. Now it's not a case of either or but both and. God is interested in this personally. Thank goodness for that. He wants us to have a personal relationship with him. But his plan has always been, right from the beginning, to call out a people for himself. A group of people. And we must never forget that dimension and what it means to be a church, the church of God in a particular location and as part of the worldwide church of God. And the other problem so often we have is even where we're concerned about church, we're only concerned about our church or our denomination or our particular group. And 1 Corinthians 3 provides a healthy corrective. So stay awake, please, for a little while. Or as Paul puts it, as he launches into this topic, grow up. Although he begins in verse 1 by addressing the Corinthians as brothers, identifying with them rather than just standing over them, he addresses them as baby brothers and sisters. Although by now they should be grown up and able to take solid food, that is more advanced teaching about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, they're still acting like babies when they first came to faith in Christ through Paul. They are infants in Christ who have not progressed beyond milk, the basic facts of the gospel that he gave them five years ago. Should you be rather discouraging about the Corinthians, can I remind you that most of this book, probably this chapter, and indeed the whole of 1 Corinthians, is probably in Paul's eyes milk. Not solid food. So if you find it difficult, ask yourself how far you've progressed and how far that progressed. And although these Christians have received the Holy Spirit and a new nature, they are not living like spiritual people, note the terms he uses, but like worldly people, those who live by the old nature. And specifically, although they are the Church of God in Corinth, they are not living like the Church of God in Corinth. So he reminds them of the basic facts about the church, about what it is, who they are, how the church in Corinth came into being, how it keeps going, how it develops and grows, and the very reason why God brought it into being in the first place. And it's these I want to look together as we look at this chapter this evening. Three important issues then about church building. Here's the first, the growth of the church in verses 5 to 9. One of the signs that Paul says indicates that these Christians in Corinth are acting on a purely human rather than spiritual basis is their factionalism and grouping around various leaders. We saw this in the beginning of our studies in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 to 17. And now he returns to it in chapter 3 verse 3. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And then in verses 5 to 9, he relates this to the growth of the church in Corinth, using an illustration from farming. The Corinthians are dividing into factions around these different leaders, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. But Paul asks, what is Paul? What is Apollos? What is Paul? 
only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Notice what he says. Very interesting, the words he uses there. He doesn't say, who is Apollos and who is Paul? He says, what are they? In other words, not the personality, what is their function? What function do Paul and Apollos play in the church? He says, they are nothing more than servants. Those who simply do what they are told and deliver what they've been given. The word servant is used in the Greek world of a table waiter who serves the food in a restaurant or a home. If you're in a restaurant, would you praise the waiter for the wonderful food? Now you'd say, please thank the chef for this great food. You may be thankful for good service, but no more than that. The credit is due to the chef who prepared the food. The waiter just did the job that was assigned to him. So Paul says, how did the church in Corinth come into being? He says, Paul and Apollos, we merely did the jobs that God asked us to do, like servants. Paul, with his gift of evangelism, said, I planted the seed of the gospel when I came to Corinth. Then Apollos, with his gift of teaching, came along, and he watered the seed, and people began to grow and mature as Christians. Paul planted the seed, Apollos watered the ground, both of them did their jobs, but it was God who brought the church into Corinth into being and enabled it to grow. God gave it life and made it grow. And without that life, unless God does something, then no matter what the gifts and talents of anyone are, they are useless unless God is there to give the life and the growth. All the planting and watering is a complete waste of time. And that's what he says in verse 6. Look at what it says. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Now, notice the vitally important relationship in every area, but particularly in the life of the church, between what we do and what God does. If you get this wrong, you'll get everything wrong, even about becoming a Christian. Every Christian is responsible to God. If by God's grace you've been called into God's family, if you are a Christian this evening, if you belong to Christ, you belong to the Lord's people, and God has placed you in a body of people with a purpose in mind. He has given you a gift or gifts that are to be used for the building up of his church. Here the two gifts are evangelism, Paul, teaching, Apollos. Later on in this book, when we come to it, God willing, the Lord carries, we'll come to the study of spiritual gifts and the many different gifts that God has given his church. So each of us is responsible for God to do the tasks he has assigned us and equipped us for. And in the final analysis, we are accountable to God as well. Each one will be rewarded according to his own labor. We cannot sit back and say, well, God will do everything. I don't need to do anything. No, we are responsible and accountable. So I ask you this evening, what are you doing within the church? And are you doing it diligently with all the resources that God has given you? But when we have done all and said all, we cannot claim any ultimate credit for the life and growth of the church. For we are only doing what we were asked and giving what we've received. What are we? Only servants. God alone gives life and growth. Now, whenever I begin to think I am more than that, or I allow other people to think I am more than that, 
or other people place people on pedestals in church life and think they are more than that, we are in trouble. We are becoming worldly instead of spiritual. We revert to the way the world operates with its personality cults. You only need to switch on the telly. It's all about celebrities. And we don't want them in the church. Because ultimately, it takes away the glory that is due to God alone. He alone makes things grow and He alone should have the glory. Now you don't need to look far to see current style leadership practices in the church today. Let me give you just one example. I personally cannot stand all these award ceremonies like the Bastards and the Oscars where overpaid people get patted on the head and told how wonderful they are or Big Mac Server of the Year or whatever it is. However, I believe... I recognise this may just be a personal prejudice and if you love these programmes, there's no spiritual reason why you shouldn't particularly, alright? However, when it comes into the church, we are in trouble. Several years ago, a letter was written to a leading Christian magazine asking why I, by name, had not been nominated for the Times newspaper Preacher of the Year. Apart from the obvious reason, and the fact that to qualify the sermon had to be less than 20 minutes and on a non-controversial subject I pointed out in my letter to the editor that in order to qualify a preacher needed to have 10 nominations from members of the congregation proposing him and I pointed out that should any member of Charlotte Chapel be stupid enough to do this they would be up before the elders look, let me be serious if in any way what I say from this pulpit or what John says or anyone says if God uses it to bring you to faith in Christ then praise the Lord if he uses it to help you grow as a Christian praise the Lord but the glory must be to God alone for God alone gives life and growth if I thought for one moment that it was up to me to try and convert people to Christianity or enable you somehow to grow as a Christian, I would give up tomorrow. I'd retire to my job fulfilling. Now, that doesn't mean I sit back every week and say, well, no problem. Put my feet on the desk and drink our nice office coffee. No, it means I must work as hard as I can with all the powers that God has given me to wrestle with God's Word as I seek to present it in a palatable and hopefully understandable way to you seeking to find what God says in his word for I am accountable to him and the Bible says those who teach have a greater accountability and will be judged all the more severely so it says be very careful if you want to teach God's word but only God makes things grow the relationship between what we do and what God does is expressed in a well known saying without God we cannot without us he will not I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think it's probably a good way of putting it, so long as we keep the two in the right order, with God first. And that's the emphasis at the end of verse 9. In the original Greek, it comes out much clearer. Literally, it says, God's we are, being fellow workers, God's field, God's building, you are. In the last analysis, I am only a waiter in God's restaurant but it's a great privilege. However, what I serve is of great importance. As Paul goes on to say, as he shifts from agriculture to architecture, 
and the second issue about the church the structure of the church and you find that in verses 10 through to 15 in the last church in which we served down in England we met at a community centre for quite a few years and then we were able to acquire a piece of land on which to erect a church building we formed a limited company to subcontract out the work ourselves the only one we could find the only name we could find that wasn't a gambling company that had gone defunct was one called Lux Tune which I thought was rather nice so I was chairman of Lux Tune Church Builders and my fellow elder was the managing director and we had fictitious meetings and it cost us a pound each but the first job I learnt and I knew nothing about building was that we had to clear the site and lay the foundation we spent over £20,000 laying the foundations and when it was done you couldn't see a thing either. just a bit of flat concrete over the top and if you visited the place today you will see a beautiful church building in West Swindon but you will see nothing of the foundations yet without them whatever we built on the site would have been a complete waste of time in fact a few months later we had those terrible storms in the south of England and the wind blew and the rain came and it was not a single tile moved off the roof or anything the building stood firm because it had secure foundations now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10 when he came to Corinth he says by the grace God has given me I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it but each one should be careful how he builds he stresses the importance of laying a good foundation he describes himself here as an expert builder the word in Greek for a builder there is architectone from which we get architect however it literally means in Greek chief or first builder the idea is more that of a site manager or supervisor who ensures that things are done properly and in order and the first essential for any building is to lay a good foundation Paul says my role in Corinth was to lay a good foundation again notice how he stresses that even that role was a God-given appointment and privilege he says by the grace God has given me I have this wonderful privilege of being able to plant a church to lay a foundation and in verse 11 he stresses there is only one foundation for any genuine church and that is Jesus Christ for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ you may remember Jesus himself at the end of that great sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 and 7 concludes with that parable of the two builders and he says everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on rock on a firm foundation and when the storm came it stood but the foolish man built his house on a poor foundation he got on with it a lot quicker no doubt but he laid it on sand and when the wind came the house blew down Matthew 7, 24 to 27 so the focus of Paul's teaching is Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ but in particular the death of Jesus his message is Christ crucified you look back at chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians he reminds them verse 1 when I came to you brothers I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified now the cross of Christ is foundational to everything in a church because the cross of Christ is the only means by which you can get into the church it's the only place that everybody has to come whether you're rich or poor whether you're educated or uneducated whether you're young or old whatever your social background 
all of us have to come to the cross. There is level ground at the foot of the cross. And therefore, Christ and Christ crucified is the foundation for everything. And you cannot build a church of living stones, take another picture from 1 Peter chapter 2, you can't build a church of living stones unless all the members have the same foundation. If you want to become a member of Charlotte Chapel, the one vital essential is, is your life built on Jesus Christ and his death for you? Are you trusting in him for your salvation? So Paul came to Corinth and he preached Christ crucified. And some people, many of them pretty unsavoury and unpromising characters, responded to the message, turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ. They became the church. And Paul says, I laid the foundation as an expert builder. The word expert there is literally wise. And the word wise is very important in this book we've already seen. Because Paul contrasts the kind of wisdom that the world relies on with the wisdom that God gives. Because some very unwise people had come in after Paul and were now building on the foundation which he laid. Oh, they seemed very wise and attractive. Very sophisticated to the Corinthians, of course, who were Greeks. And were used to Greek teaching and rhetoric and very much taken in by highfalutin sort of ideas. So Paul talks about not just laying the foundation, but building the foundation. And he says, if you're going to build on the foundation of Christ, be careful what you build. Be careful about the materials you use, about the kind of things you teach. For some of it will prove worthless, while some of it will be of lasting value. Some will survive, and some will perish. Look what he says in verse 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. He says there is a day coming when everything we have done will be tested by fire. The day to which he refers, of course, is the day when Christ returns. The day of judgment. Now on that day of judgment, he's not talking here about those who will be saved and those who will be lost. If you are trusting in Christ, you can have absolute assurance based on that foundation that you will stand on the day of Jesus. But what he's talking about here is those who are Christians and what we've built in our lives and specifically here, what we've built in the church. It is possible, he says, to discover when all is done that all that you've built is burnt up and is of useless, no value. I looked at the program, the induction program, when I came to this church just over ten years ago. And in my letter at the beginning of it, some of you may remember, I quoted these verses about building on the foundation to the membership when I came and said, I have an enormous task and I need to be careful what I build. Now I look back on ten years here. And I ask myself, in the sober last day, what have I been building? Will it last? Will it survive the test? When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will it be of lasting value? Much has been made of the materials that Paul quotes here, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw. Really, there are just two groups of things. Those that are the value that survive, those that are the worthless that get burnt up. Now again, this is a challenge to every church, and especially to those in church leadership, especially to those who teach. Maybe you teach children in the Sunday school class. 
in a church like this that is congregationally given, where every member has a part, we need to ask ourselves in Charlotte Chapel, what are we building? Is it of any lasting value? Have we shifted from the foundations? Or have we ignored the foundations upon which a church is laid? Let me give you a simple litmus test about any church in this thing. When you go to a church, how often do you hear about the cross of Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How much time is spent building on that foundation? If you have a friend who's not a Christian, would you take them with confidence to that church and the hope that they would hear what it means to be a Christian and put their faith in Christ? Now, I don't mean necessarily it's the same sort of trite words every week. Some of us grew up in churches where we always had a gospel service every evening. And it's the same words again and again and again. Preachers worked on the premise, you know, 10,000, 1,000 were his texts, but all his sermons won. But I don't mean that. I mean, it's everything based on the foundation of Christ and the gospel. Or have we, like the Corinthians, moved on to something a little more sophisticated? Oh, we may not deny the Bible. We may not doubt the deity of Christ. But we can ignore the cross of Christ. Think of the church that I was involved in in its early days. It's meeting in a, in a little hut in a little town. Some years later I went back and the church had grown and they were meeting in a huge big place. I got there half an hour late because I'd been preaching somewhere else. There was still another hour of singing and worship. And there were wonderful things happening. People were jumping around, dancing, falling on the floor singing songs again and again. I didn't mind any of that. I'm not a very good dancer. You probably know me. Recognize that. But what struck me very much was one of the young men leading, someone said something about the cross of Christ and he said something very revealing. He said, that's good to be reminded of that. We don't hear much about that these days. And I thought, what a warning. We can be doing all sorts of other things. Good things. But if Christ and Christ crucified is not central to everything, then what we are building on, we are building on very shaky foundations. Surely that is why the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, regularly when you meet together, break bread and drink a cup, drink from a cup to remind yourselves of what it's all about, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as we did this morning in the church. And sometimes what we build is just as shaky, though not so obviously so. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I heard Don Carson, one of the great New Testament scholars, speaking on 1 Corinthians 1 upon the mound at the Free Church College several years ago. One of the things he said stuck in my mind, and I've often thought about it. He said this. He said, a church comes into being when a group of people hear the gospel of Christ crucified and respond to it. A church comes into being. Out of that group of people grows a subculture of behaviour and practice based on that. Because you have to live some way and practice some particular way. The second generation enthusiastically adopts the subculture of their parents and gives lip service to the doctrine, the belief that underlies it. By the third generation, unless there is new life in the church, all you have left is the subculture and the foundations of God. And it happens in churches, and it only takes three generations for it to happen. So with what are we building? Am I building? 
one day it will be tested by fire and if anything survives it says I will receive a reward if nothing survives I'll get into heaven with nothing saved as one escaping through the flames by the skin of your teeth this verse is the main verse um, the main verse advanced by some Roman Catholics who adopt in a purgatory that after you die you have a period of testing before you finally get to heaven or hell I suppose it's obvious from the text this has nothing to do with some intermediate period between death and eternity no the foolish builder as well as the wise builder will be saved but only the wise builder will receive his reward it's not clear what that reward is quite difficult to reconcile with the doctrine of grace that all that we have and do is of God one commentator writes perhaps the reward will be the satisfaction of seeing one's work survive the penalty, the mortification of seeing it dissolve in flames I think more than that the reward will be hearing him say well done, good and faithful servant the shame will be standing before him and realising you wasted your resources wasted your talents wasted the gifts that God gave you and I don't want to be ashamed of this servant if I got grace I hope to hear him say well done or whatever however there is more serious judgment to some in connection with church building and we turn thirdly and finally to the function of the church and you find that in verses 16 to 17 he asks a question one that occurs ten times in this letter ten times in 1 Corinthians he says don't you know what he really means is you ought to know so I'm telling you don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you later in the letter in chapter 6 he speaks about the individual Christian's body being the temple of the Holy Spirit that shouldn't be defiled by sexual immorality here he's talking about a group of Christians coming together being the temple of God when they come together they are the temple in which God's spirit lives in the city of Corinth the church of God in Corinth is God's temple in Corinth in Greek there are two words for temple one is the word used of the temple building and all the precincts surrounding it the other word is the word used of the inner sanctum, the shrine in the Old Testament, the most holy place where God dwells and that is the word used of temple here the temple where God is present by his spirit now this is a mind-blowing thought if you think about it for a moment what he's saying is that when Christians meet together in a geographical location doesn't matter whether they meet in a field, a home, by the river on top of a mountain wherever they meet together and congregate together as a group of people in the name of Jesus Christ they are God's temple and God is present dwelling among them by his spirit I think when he writes this think of my opening illustration all those magnificent temples in Corinth towering over them the temple of Aphrodite and Paul says to these Corinthians uh uh-uh. uh. They're just building. The real temple where God lives by His Spirit is when you guys meet together in the house of Bishop Justice or Christus or when you get together and meet in the name of Jesus Christ. And the inference is that God's Spirit is present. That is the only place where God lives by His Spirit. Now, surely this should change a lot of our thinking about the church, not the building but the people 
the gathering of Christians together in the name of Jesus. They, we, are a temple in which God lives by His Spirit. And so to treat the church lightly, or casually, or say, it doesn't matter whether I really belong and whether I have any allegiance to this or not, I'll do my own thing. In fact, I'll flick around anywhere I feel like. Or to say, well, I'll go to that place because uh, I like the leader there, or the speaker there. Or, no, no, I should go to that place. And everybody flits around. We live in a consumer culture. And more and more Christians treat the church as though it was a supermarket. And if Sainsbury's don't have the best music this week, well, we'll go to Asda, and maybe they'll give us a free, I don't know when it might be, or a special reward card, or whatever it might be. Churches will think of it sooner or later, don't you believe it? But he says, if you treat God's church like that, you desecrate God's name. And he says, don't destroy it, this is serious stuff, or God will destroy you. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. This time there is no salvation, not even through the flames, but destruction. The punishment fits the crime. One commentator writes, to engage in making divisions is to destroy the divine society and this to invite God to destroy the sinner. Now one of the great tragedies of our day is partly because we live in an age of ease where it's easy to be a Christian, there's no persecution from outside, is that I go to so many churches that are wracked by division, that are split down the lines, you can almost sense it sometimes, into two halves. In fact, sometimes they sit in two halves. And churches are being destroyed. And it's a great tragedy. And the greatest tragedy of all is that these are the places where God's presence should be known and felt. Because God is present by His Spirit. Here's a quote from Gordon Fee, the best commentary on 1 Corinthians I recommend before. As God's temple in Corinth, the church was to be His alternative in Corinth both its religion and vices. But the Corinthians, by their worldly wisdom, boasting and divisions, were in effect banishing the Spirit and thus about to destroy the only alternative God had in their city. And sometimes, when a church acts like that, then in terms of the book of Revelation, speaking to the churches there in chapters 2 and 3, the Lord would rather remove the lamp from the lampstand than let it give a bad witness to the name Sometimes, all that is left is the building, which becomes a bingo hall, or a mosque. Or maybe people playing church, but really just running a social club. But the spirit has long since departed. It's about the glorious God. So the chapter in this section concludes with a rebuke from Paul to the Corinthian Christians, and maybe to us today. He says, don't fool yourselves, verse 18. It's a call for a change in perspective about human wisdom and about human leaders. About human wisdom, you can either be wise, Paul says, in the world's eyes, or wise in God's eyes. If you're wise in God's eyes, the world may think you're a fool. Don't be wise in the world's eyes, but be a fool for God. A fool in the world's eyes. For his verdict is all that counts. And in his eyes, the world's wisdom is foolishness and fool quotes two examples from the Old Testament from Job 5 and Psalm 94 to prove the point. God's wisdom is all that matters. And he says we shouldn't fool ourselves about human leaders. He comes back to where he finished. 
So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. You're of Christ. Christ is of God. Don't boast about mere men when all things are yours. One writer puts it. Why limit yourself to praising up some human leader when you belong to Christ who owns them and everything else? Why focus on the waiter when you know the owner and are a stakeholder in the whole worldwide restaurant chain and you belong to the one who owns it all? Not a restaurant chain, of course. But this world, life, death, the world to come, everything is yours and therefore our focus, our reason for being, is to boast and boast in the Lord and in Christ crucified. He alone should be the object of our praise. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's ask God to help us to understand what we've been thinking about together. We're going to